Welcome to Just Julie. I am Julie, and I want you to know how thankful I am that you chose to join me today. And now, here is today's episode. Hello, today's podcast is going to be powerful. My guest today is Chelsea Brooke Cole. She is a licensed psychotherapist, a coach, speaker, and author, specializing in narcissistic abuse and relational trauma. And she's got a new book out, and I can't wait for you to hear this podcast. Join us. Hello, Chelsea. Welcome today to Just Julie. Hey there. How's it going? Hey, it's going great. It's going great. I've been so excited to have you as a guest. Thank you. I'm honored you thought of me. Absolutely, because what you are talking about and in this new book needs to be heard by as many people as possible. You have a just-released book. Mm -hmm. If only I'd known how to outsmart narcissists, set guilt-free boundaries, and create unshakable self-worth. Love the title. Love the title. Yes. You must have known not only just your practice, but that the need is so huge regarding narcissism. Mm -hmm. How did you get to this point where you're like, okay, I just got to write a book about it. (laughs) It's something I wanted to do, honestly, for a really long time. But last year, I decided, okay, this needs to happen now. Because I've been working with people for so long at this point that you start to see the cycle and you see the pattern. I could tell, you know, where people were in their healing journey. I was like, okay, these people need to understand what a narcissist is because they don't even understand what we're talking about. They just think maybe they're crazy. They've never experienced something like this, or maybe they understand narcissism, but now they really need strategies to heal. They need to know how do you deal with a narcissist if one is in your family or someone that you have to interact with a lot, or how do you set boundaries? How do you find yourself again after feeling so lost in these relationships? And so that's why this book is not only a guide to help people understand narcissists, but also to help them understand how to heal and how to grow. Like literally half the book is dedicated to healing. And so I think I want people to know that this book isn't just a deep dive into narcissism, but it's also a deep dive into yourself, into your childhood, into your attachment wounds, and most importantly, what to do with all of that and how to heal and move forward. Okay. So tell me, the word narcissism is a buzzword. It sounds like it's a buzzword. It seems like it's one. Because I can't tell you how many people will say to me, so-and-so does this and this. I'm sure they're a narcissist. (laughs) And so it's like, you know, I I remember in nursing school when we were going through different kinds of diseases and things, I would have every disease every time (laughs) I was finished with nurses. And so it's kind of the same thing, you know, it's like everybody has narcissism. So how did that word finally come to the place where it is now? Right. And it's something that's always existed, but it's definitely grown in popularity. And to your point, I think sometimes things that grow in popularity become diluted because if everyone is a narcissist, then no one is a victim to it, which I think is a real slap in the face to real survivors. But for a long time, a narcissist, what I think was only thought about in a certain way, like 
the really arrogant, pompous person, maybe your over-the-top boss, a friend who can't stop talking about herself, a partner who loves to be the center of attention. But narcissism is so much more than that, which I'm sure we'll get into later. But for a long time, any narcissist who didn't fit this stereotypical arrogant person was probably completely overlooked as a narcissist and was just called immature or difficult to work with or selfish, but the harm they were doing was really overlooked. I think social media has played a huge part in its proliferation for a few reasons. First of yes. all, because before social media, narcissists actually had to leave their house to get <laughs> supply and attention and validation. You know, they had to somewhat keep their narcissistic tendencies in check. Otherwise, there would be no one left around them to <laughs> validate them and give them supply. And after social media, wow, how this changed. Now they don't have to leave their house. They can get an unlimited amount of likes, comments, posts, validation, and none of it has to be true. And I think, you know, for social media, it also rewards those who are more narcissistic. It's all about how things look. If you can take beautiful photos and make a compelling caption and grow your following, then you can get rewarded. And there's no checks and balances. No one ever has to know that you aren't actually as great as you look. Mm -hmm. So not only... Did we become like more aware of narcissism as social media increased? But I think the way social media rewards narcissism has also brought it to the forefront. Yes, social media makes all of us possible Hollywood stars by yeah. the time we we're finished with all the editing. <laughs> right. <laughs> you can look however you want to. And yeah, exactly. And I often say that about narcissists. It's like they're in their own reality show. Oh, boy, that is true. What, that would make an interesting reality show. Oh, <laughs> I think we already have those. They're all just called reality TV. Just a bunch of narcissists on there. Well, you know, you mentioned in chapter one of this book, it was like, how did you get here? Mm -hmm. And a lot of times we only think of narcissists as just a spouse. But are there narcissistic parents and friends or, or, or bosses and how do those people interact in our lives? What does that look like? A hundred percent. I mean, yeah, we do see a lot more about narcissistic partners, but if you think about it, every narcissistic partner is also someone's child or friend or perhaps parent or boss or coworker. And the effects from these relationships is just as damaging. In therapy and coaching, I've worked with people who had narcissistic parents, siblings, friends, bosses, coworkers. Literally, it can show up in any relationship because Narcissism is a, is a personality trait, so any person can have it. But the core hurts from these relationships are essentially going to be the same because narcissists exhibit the same patterns of behavior over time. They're entitled. They believe they deserve special treatment. They're critical and contemptuous. Use you for what they can get from you. So no matter who the narcissist is in your life, you're left feeling not enough, confused, hypervigilant, foggy, anxious. And our attachment system plays a big role and often keeping us in these harmful relationships. Attachment theory is really interesting because essentially it says we're all born with a need to attach. So initially we do so with our caregivers and then and then typically to our partners. And it's not a conscious decision. You know, when you're growing up as a child, you don't stop and think, hmm, is this caregiver healthy or unhealthy? Like, should I make this attachment? You just do. So whether that possible narcissists in your life is a parent or a partner, a sibling or a friend, your attachment system is going to urge you to keep that attachment, to make it work. 
And so you often feel like you're in this internal conflict. You want to keep the attachment, but you also want the pain to stop. Unfortunately, when you're dealing with a narcissist, you can't have both. Staying in a close relationship, incessantly hoping things are going to get better, not setting clear boundaries for fear of losing the attachment is going to hurt you. So I think acknowledging and knowing up front that stepping back will hurt is also key to healing because if you're waiting for yourself to feel good about breaking that attachment, it's not going to happen. Like you have to make a decision to step away from this relationship or set healthy boundaries that are good for you before you ever feel like doing it. Yes, yes, absolutely. And that attachment piece is so confusing at times mm-hmm. because it's like you don't understand why you can't just step away. And attachment is a God-wired thing because we are created mm-hmm. as a people who like to herd. We like to be with other people. That's just how it works. And so when we have to step away from someone who's given that need to us that we have just because we're humans, it is really very hard to do. Do you think people just, they finally have to get to a point where they're just like, I, th- how many times though do people say, I'm done, I'm done, and they <laughs> go right back, I'm done, this is it, I'm over it, they keep going back. Is there a time when finally, finally, finally it hits them, they're finally done? Mm-hmm. There's some, there's a concept called this shelf or or I call it the psychological shelf where it's like you put things on a shelf that you don't know what to do with that don't make sense. Like the hurts and the betrayals and the inconsistencies that happen in these relationships Mm -hmm. before you're able to see it or before you're willing to see it for what it is, you just put them on the shelf. But usually eventually one day that shelf breaks and then you have to see it. Yes. Yes. And that's one of those things that I hear a lot of times from people is, how come I didn't see this? And then they start beating up on themselves. When, mm-hmm. What is wrong with me? How come I didn't see that when we were dating? Or how come I didn't see that when we were years into this and I, and I didn't see it? And when they don't, Chelsea, what, what are usually the reasons that, that people are struggling? You know, is it because they attach with peace or is there just so many variables Mm-hmm. to these kinds of relationships. I think one of the biggest struggles is because in narcissistic relationships, there will always be good days and bad days. Mm-hmm. The biggest mistake I see people making is thinking that the good days mean maybe the bad days are over. Maybe they were just stressed. Maybe we were just going through a transition phase. Maybe we have it figured out now. But the reality is narcissistic relationships are inherently hot and cold. Like there will literally always be good days and bad days. Like there will be rainy days and sunny days. And using a weather analogy, like we know just because it's sunny outside today doesn't mean it'll never rain again. So I'm not going to go and sell all my umbrellas just because the sun is shining. (laughs) But sometimes in these relationships, we have a really hard time seeing those ups and downs as patterns and believing and knowing that that's going to continue to happen. And one reason we have a hard time seeing that is because of something called betrayal blindness. Essentially, the more we want to keep an attachment or perceive it to be really vital to our survival or our way of life, the more we can overlook or dismiss anything that would threaten the attachment. Meaning, you know, if you really allowed yourself to see the bad and the abuse and the harm that was ha- this person is causing you, you might actually have to either end the relationship or set firm boundaries or just change the way that you think about that person or think about that relationship. Now, 
like we were talking about, over time, eventually most people get to the point where the psychological shelf breaks, but that can take months, years, literally sometimes decades if you don't have the right strategy. So there's a couple ways that I encourage people to save themselves a bunch of time and heartache to get to that point. Mm -hmm. You have to be able to take a mental and emotional step back and, and see the pattern. I often tell people it's like putting a puzzle together. You can't figure out where a certain piece goes by holding it up really close to your face and studying that particular piece. You have to look at all the pieces to yes. see where it goes. So in a narcissistic relationship, you need perspective. You need to be able to back away from this. So number one, journal about the facts of the relationship. Write things down that are happening. Like what happened today? How did you feel? What did they say? What did you say? Did this person say anything that contradicted something they've already said? And this is going to allow you to get an objective look at the relationship and take your reality back. Because if you're dealing with a narcissist over time, things won't add up. Like they will contradict themselves. And if you have it written down, then you can go back and say, ah, I knew we agreed to this. Or my memory was right. They did say that. They okay. did say they would do yes. this. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And the other thing you can do is talk to uh, you know a trusted person. This could be a therapist, a coach, a friend, a mentor. Because it's so helpful to tell someone about what we've been through. Because it's often in the telling of the story that we realize how much we've been through. At least I know for me going through my own therapy, I didn't really realize how much I'd been through. Like I thought it was a lot theoretically, but it's telling someone about what you've been through because then you get to see how much you've normalized the bad behavior, how much you have grown accustomed to the abuse so that when, by the time, you know, your years or months into the relationship, you're like, well, it wasn't as bad as yesterday. So eh, like your, your expectations have been lowered over time. And two, you get to see that other person's feedback and you get to hear them say, wow, that was, that was really awful. Or I can't believe they said that to you. And then you can start to accept what you've really been through. Yes. Yes. Does that, that kind of sounds like the battered woman syndrome mm -hmm. in some ways, just that constant return and excusing behaviors that are unacceptable, mm -hmm. but just keep going back over and over and over again. And so this kind of pattern, you can see patterns when you journal. Yes. And that's why journaling is so important because the whole idea is to look back and see how is that working again up here months later, mm -hmm. days later. It's it's still going on. And I love that about the journaling. I don't think we always give that the attention it deserves in helping spot patterns of uh or cycles of abuse mm -hmm. yeah i know i did that a lot yeah to figure out what was going on with me because i would go back and it's like groundhog day you know you think in your mind maybe things are getting a little bit better but then you go back and read your journal and you're like no that's like literally the same thing every day every week so that really helped me personally yes yes one of the things i wanted to ask about wanted you to talk about was interpersonal exploitation mm -hmm. Oh my word. That's a wow. <laughs> There's so many layers. Yeah, so much we could talk about. And I'm so glad you bring this up because I think it's the one pattern that people who don't understand narcissism have the hardest time wrapping their head around. And I'll tell you why. Because when you are a healthy, rational, caring, empathetic person, you can't imagine not caring about someone. 
Like when you make decisions, you automatically factor in how it's going to impact those around you. You don't have to think about showing empathy. It's just natural. You just do. You want your private and public behaviors to match. You feel guilty if they don't. You want a balanced relationship. And when you live this way, as so many survivors do, you assume others do too. And so when things aren't working in your relationship, when you're dealing with a narcissist, you're imagining yourself in their shoes and trying to do the mental gymnastics of figuring out their behavior by wondering, hmm, what would make me get to the point where I would act or say or do those things? But when you're dealing with a toxic person, you cannot take that approach because narcissists view relationships completely differently than a healthy person. Narcissists, toxic people view relationships in a very transactional way. They don't want to build a close connection. They want control. They don't want your love. They want your admiration. So narcissists view relationships like a healthy person views products. For example, me and my coffee maker have a great relationship. I get up in the morning, it makes me coffee, it serves the function I want it to in my life. I would say we're good. If I got up in the morning and my coffee maker stopped working, then I would be upset. I would say, this is not working out for me. It's not serving the function that I want it to. And I'd probably throw it out and get a new one. And that is how narcissists view people. That is the basis for interpersonal exploitation. They aren't creating meaningful relationships. They're creating relationships based on what they can get from you. Oh, very interesting. Very interesting. And they do it in such a charming way. Some of them do. <laughs> yeah, because we can talk about the different types of narcissists where some of them are quite charming, some of them not so much. Okay. Well, let's go. What are all the different types? I mean, most of us, you know, we're thinking a narcissist is a narcissist because we've got this five bullet points that we yeah. decided this, this is what qualifies them. And no, have they ever been diagnosed? No, but I'm sure they are. So <laughs> mm -hmm. I think you said six different types of narcissists. What is that? Yes, I do. I cover six different types of narcissists in my book, just based on the research and how much I've seen these in working with clients. So the grandiose narcissist is the one most people think of when they hear the term narcissist. That's probably the one you're talking about. They tend to be very charming, charismatic, extroverted, social. They might come across as, as arrogant, though, or entitled and superior, but they do so in such a charming way, like you were saying, that you feel like you're getting pulled into something magical, especially if this is a romantic partner. A lot of people describe this as the best date they've ever had, the best relationship, because grandiose narcissists are great at future faking, creating this ideal life or relationship or family you're going to have with them. So they are very charming and they, and they often do pull people in. This can also look like you're the know-it-all coworker, a charming but temperamental boss. So this can show up in, in lots of different ways. The vulnerable narcissist, which often on social media and other places we hear termed the covert narcissist just because their grandiosity isn't as obvious as a grandiose narcissist. They have one of two presentations, depending on what works best for them at the time. They come across as either really nice, like I know the vulnerable nurses I've dealt with. I left thinking, man, they are the nicest person I've ever met, but also almost like too nice, like they had something to hide nice, but I didn't you know, totally know that at the time. Or they come across as really down on their luck and depressed. But they're just as entitled as a grandiose narcissist. Their entitlement just looks different. So a grandiose narcissist would say, world, look how great I am. A vulnerable narcissist would say, 
Why doesn't the world see how great I am? Why are people always out to get me? Why doesn't anything go my way? Mm-hmm. So they're pulling you in by getting you to feel sorry for them. And if you try to set boundaries or walk away, they will guilt you and shame you. I always say the big sign you're dealing with a vulnerable narcissist is when you stop helping someone out of choice and start helping them out of obligation. Okay. That's the big difference there. <laughs> Very much. Yeah. And you can see how you need to be in tune with yourself too, like because that's a, something that you're going to feel. Yes. So I talk about that in my book too, like how important our intuition is. But a few other types of narcissists, the self-righteous narcissists, they come across as morally superior. They're very critical of anyone who doesn't meet their standards. They almost have like an OCD feel to them as far as how intent they are at doing certain things in a certain way. And for them, living in such a controlled way is how they're able to prove to themselves how much better they are than everyone else. So that's their entitlement. Neglectful narcissists are the most cold, callous, and checked out of all the narcissists. They are the ones who engage in extreme withholding behaviors. I have clients who their spouse literally hasn't been intimate and not just sex, but like affection for years as a punishment. Or they have a spouse who will refuse to talk with them, who acts like they don't exist for years. A lot of people who have dated and married neglectful narcissists say there was no honeymoon. There was no love bombing. They just kind of ended up together out of practicality or convenience. And it is the most soul-sucking relationship they've ever been in. Mm-hmm. A communal narcissists are the philanthropists, humanitarians, do-gooders of the world. And even though they do a lot of good things, they aren't doing them for the sake of doing good. They're doing it for the validation they expect to receive because of it. To the outside world, communal narcissists are the ones who look saint-like. Like you feel almost special and chosen to be with or be around a communal narcissist because they look like they're doing so much good. But if they don't get the validation and praise that they're looking for, when they do those good things, then they are just as sullen, rageful, interpersonally exploitative as any of the other one narcissists. That's very interesting. Communal. So those mm-hmm. are going to be people who are out in the front mm-hmm. leading a particular cause. Mm-hmm. And if there's any pushback to that cause, you best be careful. Yeah, they take a lot of pride. That's where their entitlement comes from, is seeing themselves as so good, so helpful. A lot of communal narcissists are also involved in religious spaces because they get a lot of praise for being so good, so pious, so better than or so dedicated to living a certain way. But at home or behind closed doors, they're antagonistic, they're mean, they're critical, they're passive aggressive. They basically don't follow any of their religious practices except in public spaces. Oh, I see. Oh, okay. And then that becomes a spiritual abuse issue as well. hundred percent. Yes. Mm-hmm. And then it's, yeah, totally a topic for a different day, but yeah. So but yeah. yes, very damaging the spiritual abuse part. So this one is the most, the darkest and most sadistic type of narcissist. They don't just feel entitled to say and do what they want. They actually take pleasure in hurting you because they see your pain as proof of their power. These are the ones who will drag you through endlessly long legal custody battles, not because they want any more custody of the kids, but just because they know doing so will hurt the ex 
-hmm. or at work, they'll embezzle millions with no regard for how it impacts other people. They're as close as you can get to being a psychopath without being a psychopath. There's just a few strings of difference between a malignant narcissist and a psychopath. So they're very chilling to be around. Huh. Yes, I've seen that where using the children is not for the benefit of the child. No. Using the children is for the benefit of the parent to inflict pain on the other parent. Mm -hmm. To keep control of the situation. Yes, yes, absolutely. Wow. That's so enlightening. As I'm listening to this, I'm thinking, oh, boy, oh, boy, oh, boy. (laughs) (laughs) Things start to click. That's right. Oh, yes. There's a lot of clicking going on. Okay. Well, what I appreciate about your book, Chelsea, is that there is devotion to healing because Mm -hmm. that is the piece that so many people are needing. They don't know that they'll ever be able to, to feel that healing. Or sometimes there might be a tendency to think that healing is so quickly with someone else and they go to another relationship only to find out it's the same kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And so what are some, I know there's blocks to healing. Mm -hmm. What are some of those that, that you have had to deal with and maybe just a a few ways to, to help end some healing. And Mm -hmm. then of course I want to encourage the audience, audience to go purchase your book, but can you share a few of those things? Sure. Yeah. I cover a lot of them in my book, but some of them that really stand out is a lot of people focus so much on the pain and not enough on healing. And that's why I actually wanted to cover the healing part in my book because there's so much information on narcissism. We can get lost in it and you can just feel so, after you feel validated, if you stick with it too long, then you start to feel heavy and depressed. Mm -hmm. And I mean, there's no way around the fact that narcissistic abuse hurts. And that's where I often start with clients validating their reality, that what they've been through was real and that it wasn't okay and it wasn't their fault. But sometimes I will see people getting stuck and drowning in the pain instead of wading through it for the purpose to get to the other side. So I encourage people, set a timer for 10 minutes, 30 minutes, whatever you need a day or a week to talk about or journal about what's happened, but also make sure you're giving yourself space to see around the pain. Like make sure you're investing in things that are meaningful to you or at least give you something else to focus on, like watching a funny movie or doing a puzzle or playing with your pets or spending time with kids. Kids can really pull us out of our head that we can get stuck in sometimes as adults. But the point is just to have a reminder to be present and find joy or peace or calmness in this moment, even acknowledging that you're still in pain and you're still going through something, but make sure you're still giving yourself a space to find joy or peace in something, even if it is for just a moment. Yes, yes, okay. I think that that healing sometimes seems so hard. And I don't know, Chelsea, if you found that that's one of the hardest things is when the, the load is so heavy that trying to break through feels like you're lifting an elephant off your chest and mm-hmm. it's just why bother? But when people come to see you that are, are dealing with this, is there a, an amount of time that seems where people finally kind of click and go, okay, I think I can do this now. Does this, does this take some months to get there or does it just depend on the person and what they're dealing with? Mm-hmm. You know, it does, it does depend some on your personality and how many toxic relationships you've had. I'm thinking of some clients who if they were raised in a toxic family or by a narcissistic parent and they had a narcissistic spouse, then it's going to take them a bit longer perhaps because there's just so many more connections to make and 
there's more trauma to, to undo and to heal from. For someone who maybe you just had a narcissistic friend who's been at a distance, but they have negatively impacted you, but you have so many other supports in your life, then they can might initially make quicker progress because they already have so many more legs on the table, if you will. Like they have more foundational supports that help them. But initially, I encourage people to give themselves at least six months to a year to grieve, to go through the process of figuring out what you dealt with and how it's impacted you. And I have questions in the book too, to help people like sort through all of that. Yeah. To give you an overview. Yeah. To give you an overview for healing. So yeah, something like that. But the most important thing too, is to know that there's no right or wrong way to heal. Like a lot of clients will come to me and they'll say, you know, tell me exactly what healing looks like or or how should I be yes. doing this? Is this the right way to move forward? And, mm-hmm. you know, I tell them, of course, I'm happy to guide them. But I always tell my clients, I believe in your intuition. I believe that you know what's best for you and you need the space to trust that. And so if I just come and give you all the answers or say what I think, well, how do I know that that's going to be most helpful for you? Yes. I want to work myself out of a job, you know, to help people build self-trust and self-esteem where they don't need me anymore. You need that at first, just like you need a cast when your arm is broken to heal back in the right way, in the right place. But once your arm is healed, you don't need that cast anymore. So I wanted to get people to that point. Right. And there can be an attachment problem there as well. Yeah, it (laughs) can be. With with therapists, clients can get attached to where they're not working on, on the attachment piece of this. But I tell you what, Chelsea... I can't thank you enough for doing this kind of work and this book is phenomenal and this can be purchased Amazon. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Amazon, Barnes and Noble, Books a Million, all kinds of places. You can just Google it and it'll come up or go to my website, chelseabrookcole.com and I have a bunch of places listed, whether you're in the U.S. or internationally. That's wonderful. And you know, <laughs> I'm trying to think, okay, this is not a Christmas gift to the narcissist. No. <laughs> Do not your give it. Own Christmas gift to yourself. <laughs> That's right. Or someone you know who's experienced, you yes. know, a toxic relationship or is either getting stuck in healing or not sure what they're dealing with. Either way, it's going to help them bring clarity and hopefully healing. All right. Well, thank you so much for being on our podcast today. And I'm confident this is going to help so many people because they're going to start thinking just like I've been doing while I've been listening to you. Mm -hmm. And that's the start is starting to start thinking about what's going on and moving forward from there. Yeah. Thank you so much. And I hope you have a beautiful holiday season. You too. Thank you so much for having me. Uh Uh-huh. And to my audience, thank you for listening and remember to be kind. This podcast is brought to you by The Still Waters. The Still Waters is a service to provide counseling when you don't know what to do or how to make it through those difficult days. Buried beneath a lifetime of heartache and broken, sometimes help is needed to find the real you, the genuine you created by God. Through The Still Waters, you can find the life tools that lead to peace and healing and happiness. Go to the website, stillwaterslife.com, and take the first step toward rising above and finding a better life. Stillwaterslife.com. Visit the website today, stillwaterslife.com.